I have a question for you as we start with this passage. It's long. I know it's long, but I want to ask you this question. For what are you willing to suffer? Honestly, what are you willing to suffer? You saw that these guys were beaten at the end of the passage. And it stops me and makes me ask the question, what are you willing to suffer? The marathon's coming up. I mean, some of you are suffering pretty heavy for the marathon. Uh, I suffer in my basement. I have this bicycle that is an old Schwinn Airdyne. I don't know if you remember. It's a pedal and a, and a, and a hand motion, too. And as I was down there this week in the dark and the dank basement and sweating all over everything profusely and wondering, why am I suffering for this? What is going on? You know, a little bit more to the point, St. Patrick was a missionary, 5th century. He was a British guy. Actually, he was kidnapped outside of his father's home and he was taken to Ireland where he was enslaved as a shepherd and then he came back and in that time he began to understand the value of his faith and to understand God's love for him and he answered a call to return to Ireland where as a Brit he brought the gospel and suffered greatly at their hands. Patrick, not even Irish, but the patriot saint of Ireland some would argue that throughout the Dark Ages, because of his efforts in Ireland, Christianity was saved around the world. What are you willing to suffer for? Maybe you're here today and you're not even a Christian. And that question is posed to you. What are you willing to suffer for? To suffer dishonor? To suffer persecution? Even to suffer death? You know that the pastor of early reign Christian church, Wang Yi, is still in prison suffering. You want to read a letter that comes from someone who suffers, look up his letter and read what he wrote to be, dis, uh, to be distributed among his church after he was imprisoned. The question is, what are you willing to suffer for? I want to tell you what I think the argument of this passage is. Are you ready? The gospel of Jesus advances unhindered in this world, even in the face of opposition. Therefore, we should rejoice and speak the name of Jesus boldly. You want to hear it one more time? The gospel of Jesus advances unhindered, even in the face of opposition. Therefore, we should rejoice and speak the name of Jesus boldly. That's what this passage is about. And that is the call on your life. Are you willing to suffer for that? Let's look at it together. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ always advancing unhindered? Well, look at verse 14, and you begin to get the idea of this passage. We're not going to be able to read the whole thing again. It's, it's too long, right? But look at verse 14 and see what it says there. In the very middle of that very first paragraph, the paragraph is entitled, Many Signs and Wonders Done, right? And look at verse 14, it says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The writer of Luke, Luke, the apostle Luke is saying, look, more than ever, people were coming to faith. The gospel was, was, was going unhindered. And we already know that over 5,000 people in this short period of time had come to faith. And he's saying now more than ever folks were coming. Look at verse 19, if you will. 19, in the middle of this story, you know that the, the chief priest along with the Sadducees, the council of Israel, 
the, the leaders of the people became jealous of all the attention that the disciples were getting. And it says that they imprisoned them. And then it says in the middle of the night, verse 18, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said in verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And verse 21 says, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. You, you get the joke, right? I mean, they were jealous and so they imprisoned them to stop the spread of the gospel. The angel of the Lord just went and released them and says, go ahead and start preaching again. And they went out the next morning, went straight to the temple and started preaching again. Unhindered the message of the gospel going forward. Unhindered, right? And then if you jump all the way to the end, 42, listen to how the story ends. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The argument of this passage is that the gospel of Jesus advances unhindered, even in the face of opposition. Therefore, we should rejoice and speak the name of Jesus boldly, boldly. This is a story about the attempt to hinder the proclamation of the gospel and how it failed. Look at those who opposed it. And let's look at that for just a minute. That the gospel always advances unhindered even in the face of opposition. Now look, you pick it up in verse 17 after it explains that, hey, more and more people were coming to faith. And it says in verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them into the public prison. What I want you to see is that this opposition to the gospel was attempted, but it was attempted to no end. There was no way that it was going to slow down this proclamation of the gospel. They arrested them, they put them into prison, but as we just saw immediately, an angel of the Lord came, opened the doors of the prison and said, you go out and start preaching again. And they went out. They went out and they began to preach again. And then when the rulers had to come to them a second time, they had to go to them in the temple and say, actually, hey, would you please come with us this time? Says they couldn't arrest them with force because they were afraid that the people would stone them. They feared the people and the popularity of the disciples and the apostles. And so they said, would you please come to us? Now it's kind of ironic, isn't it? The irony of this is that they were arrested so that they would then be put on trial, but God freed them and yet there was still a trial. You know, that's interesting. You think if God would free them from prison, maybe he wouldn't give them a trial. Maybe he wouldn't really use that freedom to trial, to have a trial and determine what was actually happening, but God does. We see that there was an indictment, but I want you to notice who was indicted. Look at this with me. It says here that in, in verse 27, it says that after they went to the temple and got the disciples again and said, would you please come to your trial? <laughs> now, who does that in a court of law? Would you please show up? Would you please come? And these guys go, sure, we'll come. When they had been brought, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And verse 29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered. Now, Peter spoke for the apostles. And he says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. And you go, wait a minute. Why were they enraged? Why did they want to kill him? Haven't we heard Peter say this very thing before? In fact, if you go back into the third chapter, we see that this is not the first time that Peter and John were in front of this council. It's the second time. And yet, then they said, do not. We will threaten you with your lives. Do not preach Jesus. But they went out and obeyed, disobeyed, and they preached Christ. They said then, you have to judge us, whether it's right to obey you or obey God. But we can only speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. And then in this they open up and they say, look, we charged you last time. We charged you not to speak in his name. And yet you have filled all of Jerusalem. And if you pay attention to the verses before, even the neighboring towns were bringing in their sick to be healed by the apostles. You filled all Jerusalem with this teaching. And you even want to put Jesus' blood on us. And suddenly you begin to ask the question, who's on trial? And that's when Peter speaks and he says, we must obey God instead of man. And he actually says this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Now, these Jews would have understood that when he said by hanging on a tree, he was pulling a reference out of Deuteronomy that says, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. And Peter is saying, you cursed this Christ, but God raised him to life. And not only that, but God exalted him to be the foundation of a new life. The idea of leader here is the same phrase as the author of life that we saw back in chapter 3. And in fact, it's interesting because the angel of the Lord who let them get out of prison said, go back into the temple and preach about this life. Right? The life that Jesus brings. God has exalted this Jesus and made him leader and savior. This Jesus whom you have killed to bring repentance and forgiveness to all of Israel. And here's where you really see it. You see it when he says, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter and the apostles are saying, you all are the ones who have disobeyed. And you've disobeyed God. And we are witnesses to it, as is the Holy Spirit. And you are guilty. You're guilty of silencing the message of the gospel and of killing Christ. And that's why they're enraged. Because the trial that was intended to be for the apostles is actually the trial that implicates the leaders of God's people to being against God. And you see the irony of it continues in this story about Gamaliel because it says that they were so enraged that they wanted to kill him. But Gamaliel stands up and he says, 
wait a minute. He ushers the apostles out, and then he says, now I want you to pay attention. you got to be careful about how you deal with these guys. And he gives these two examples of these insurrections that were political that had fallen apart. And he said, look, they'll fall apart. If they're from man, it'll all fall apart. But if they're from God, you won't even be able to stop them anyway. So leave them alone. Keep your distance from them. Gamaliel says, you ought to go neutral on this one. You ought to let it see how it goes. But even there, we see the inability to be neutral to this story, to the reality, to your reaction of who Jesus is, because they said, okay, we'll be neutral, and then what do they do? They beat them. <laughs> Most likely, they beat them 39 times. You know that when this beating that they were given was given, one-third of those whips would have been across their chest, and two-thirds of those whips would have been across their back. They beat them, as we would say, to a pulp. And then they commanded them, now you go out and say nothing about this teaching. But what did you see already? That the gospel of Jesus advances unhindered. Because verse 42 says, like never before did they teach and preach in the name of Jesus. They said that every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Because the opposition to God is indicted. The opposition of God cannot seek neutrality, but is proclaimed as guilty. And the question has to be asked, if opposition to God is indicted, what does this opposition look like? What does it look like to oppose God? Well, it's pretty interesting looking at this passage, but maybe in your heart you're saying, I wonder if I oppose God. I wonder if I oppose his work in my life. Well, look at what marked the opposition of the leaders of the people. You see one in verse 17. It says that they looked at the apostles and they were filled with jealousy against them, is what it says in verse 17. It says that they looked at the apostles and they were jealous. They said, I want the attention that they're getting. Filled with jealousy over what they're getting. The second thing that marked them was in verse 26. What marked this opposition of God is actually fear of men rather than considering what it means to fear God and figure out if God is actually at work. Because the amazing thing about this is that Gamaliel tells them, look, if God is behind this, you're not going to be able to stop it. And we all as readers look at it and go, isn't it obvious to them that God is behind this? But see, they don't see God's hand at work because they're filled with fear of human beings. They want the glory that human beings offer one another more than they care to fear God. And then lastly, we see their defensiveness. We see it in verse 33, that when they are called on the carpet, as we might say in our vernacular, when Peter says, look, we're witnesses against you and so is the Holy Spirit, it's not us who've disobeyed, it's you who have disobeyed. Instead of receiving the repentance and the forgiveness that is offered in the name of Christ, the leader of a new way of life, it says that they were defensive. It actually says that they were infilled with rage. They were enraged and they wanted to kill him. And we often say that our rage and our anger and our jealousy blinds us, don't we? Look, if you're here today, and you're not a Christian, 
and you hear this passage and you hear the argument that says that the gospel of Jesus advances unhindered, even in the face of opposition, how do you respond? Look, you know, we know, we all know together that we as human beings are filled with an emptiness, if we could say such a thing. That ironic statement that we are filled with emptiness, that we seek to fill with something. The big three, money, sex, power, led with jealousy, fear of humans, and seeking to impress, to be filled with others' praise. And when we are found out, overwhelmed with defensiveness. The question is, what are you missing? And this says that we are missing relationship with God. A God who offers repentance and forgiveness. That this forgiveness is what is on offer. In verse 31, it says that the forgiveness is a gift. It even says that repentance is a gift that God has given in the name of Jesus. And what does this repentance look like? Andrew sent out the, the questions from the Heidelberg Catechism this week to the men's Bible study. And it's a great thing to consider when you think about what repentance really looks like. To grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. And to hate and to flee from that sin. And with heartfelt joy even rejoicing in God through Christ, that we would love and delight to live according to the will of God and to do all of his good works. That robust question of repentance. Because the gospel of Jesus advances unhindered and those who oppose it are indicted and are found guilty. What do you do if that's you? The invitation of verse 31 is to repent and to receive forgiveness and to say, God, that's me. Give it to me. But see, Gamaliel doesn't do that. Gamaliel says, oh, look, you can do this, deal with this neutrally. You don't have to decide one way or the other. You don't have to decide at all. But that's not what this passage says. You see, those of you who are here in this room who are Christians... You're not immune to this either. And you know it. And I know it. We know it. That even though in Christ we've been set free from the absolute compulsion to have to sin, we still choose to be led by jealousy, fear of human beings, and defensiveness a lot. We still need more when we look at this world, don't we? The futile pursuit of happiness in this world. The futility of pursuing that because we see others and we say, I'm not as happy as others. I want what they have. I want something more than what God has given. This intoxicating, the intoxicating praise of others. The fear of human beings that infects all of us that keeps us from being willing to speak boldly of the good news of Jesus 
And then finally, we end up in a place of defensiveness. Even as Christians, when we're called out, we go, but you don't know how hard it is to live where I live. Some of us have been talking this semester about a sense of feeling muted in our own lives. Muted, unable to speak because of the difficulty of our lives. The difficulty of being Christians in a secular society and having nothing to say. And you see, there's never a place where their good works are challenged in this passage. Right? Good works all day long. Yes, bring the good works. But the opposition to the gospel is that of proclaiming the name of Jesus, the only name under heaven, as Peter had said before, by which women and men will be saved. That will be persecuted. That will lead us to persecution. What is interested, interesting here is that what is required of Christians as well is repentance and remembering that we have been forgiven. You see, this is the incredible reality, is that the gift of both repentance and forgiveness in verse 31 is given by the founder of life. When it says leader and savior, what he is saying is he is saying this gift of repentance of, hey, listen, you, I love you. I died for you. Return from the idols that you have worshipped this week and turn back to me. That intoxicating praise of others that you live for, how many likes and hits and responses you got to the witty thing that you said and pictured, return to me. You who are filled with jealousy and can't find peace, Return to me. I will fill you. You who are defensive. It's not me. My life's so hard. Return to me. I will give you the gift of repentance. I will give you forgiveness. The thing that amazes me is that we think that our sin surprises God as much as it surprises us. But I want you to know the God who loved you when you were dead in your sins and transgressions isn't surprised by your sin. What you hear from him is that it is his joy to offer you forgiveness. This repentance and forgiveness comes from his hand. Something happens at my house every week that I wish that you guys could come and see. It happens almost every day. At least Sugar hopes it happens every day at my house. Every day, the mailman walks down my street, and my mailman's name is James. The mailman before James was Ron, and Ron and Sugar also had this unique relationship. In fact, Ron believes that Sugar diagnosed his brain tumor, which he ended up dying from. I have no idea if Sugar did that. But what I do know is that as James walks down our sidewalk, he whistles. And wherever Sugar is in the house, she bolts to the door. Now, a bad day for Sugar is when she doesn't see James. And I open up the mailbox and I pull out the mail. And with the mail is often a biscuit. And I walk in the house and I put the mail down and Sugar looks at me and I give Sugar the biscuit and she takes the biscuit and she runs off and eats the biscuit. 
But oh, I wish that you could see what it's like when sugar sees James coming. She knows that she's going to get a biscuit. But whenever she sees me give her the biscuit, she's just like, give me the biscuit, I'll go away. But when she sees James bring the biscuit, she goes berserk. The barking, the jumping, the joy, and the elation of this relationship. She gets the same thing when I give it to her, but I'm not James. And what I want you to see in this passage is that the joy of the Lord who gives you repentance and forgiveness of sins will transform you. You see, we talk about repentance and forgiveness all the time, and it doesn't change us so often because we just think it's the biscuit. It's what we get. But if you would see the joy of the Lord who gives you this repentance and forgiveness... That's something worth rejoicing. And I want you to know you will never rejoice over suffering until you rejoice over the gift of repentance and forgiveness. And what will cause you to rejoice over that is seeing in that gift the joy of the Lord for you. His love for you will transform you. The argument here is that the gospel advances unhindered, even in the face of opposition. Therefore, we should rejoice and speak the name of Jesus boldly. Let's pray.